This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're talking to Nick Waters, a Bellingcat researcher who focuses on drones and drone bombs, specifically how militant groups, jihadists, guerrillas, whatever, how they weaponize commercial drones. Not the kind of drones you see the US bombing Yemen with, the kind of drones that you can buy from Amazon and fly about in your garden if you want to. In 2017, ISIS began fixing small grenades and mortars to the drones in Mosul, flying them around the place and attacking the Iraqi military. And since then, we've seen other militant groups start using this technique. And Nick is going to be telling us all about it. To keep Popular Front moving forward, go to patreon.com slash popular front. Consider pledging, even if it's just $1 a month, it all helps. You've done a lot of work on the weaponization of what you would call commercial drones, so drones you could buy off of Amazon or whatever or in the supermarket. Why did you decide to make that your point of research? Well, I was kind of looking for a big data project. So I've seen other people tracking SVB IDs, suicide vehicle borne IEDs in Mosul. I want to do something similar. And I just noticed that a lot of like Islamic State propaganda channels were pumping out uh, a lot of these images and short videos showing drone strikes. So I figured, hey, I'll start collecting them, see if I can spot patterns, that kind of stuff. So it was really the interest in the munitions that led on to the interest in drones um, and then turned into this whole like uh, like drone strike uh, database, which I have now. Well, and you collected that big piece for Bellingcat, right? What was that? Can you talk to us about that? You got every single drone strike in Mosul or around there, right? Uh, yeah, so I believe I have every single image and video uh, of... Uh, that Islamic State published of their drone strikes. Uh, so in total, that's 208 so far. Um, the vast majority, in fact, all but one, were in 2017. Uh, the, the rate of publishing has obviously dropped off since then because of the collapse of the Islamic State. Uh, but basically, I was just spending a shitload of time on uh, Telegram channels, um, got a lot of help from a couple of other guys uh, on Twitter, uh, shout out to Saladin Aldroni, who uh, who like sent me a lot of this stuff or pointed me in the right direction, uh, and I just collected it all into a big database where I rank it by publishing date, um, and yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. Um, just spotting patterns within it. Yeah, and how how did they start doing that? Because I remember only like you said, 2017, I think was the first time I ever saw any ISIS propaganda. I think it was in Mosul. And they got this little drone that, you know, I remember at Vice when I used to work there, we had drones and we would take them out on shoots sometimes. I remember seeing the same drone that we'd been using with basically like a mortar round attached to it or something like that, that ISIS was using. Why, do you, why is it they suddenly started using them at that time? Uh, it's kind of weird because this tech isn't that new. Um, yeah. It was only uh, really in 2017 that all these drone strikes happening on a such a massive scale. Um, I think the first proper weaponized drone that IS used was actually in 2015. Uh, so it was in December 2015, um, some pictures were posted on Twitter claiming to show that a Islamic State drone uh, armed with an ID had been shot by shot down by YPG fighters, um, which was which is pretty interesting. Um, but it's weird because you've got, you know, uh, plots dating back to 2008 from Iraq, uh, where drones were seized like little toy helicopters were seized and apparently they were going to drop uh, chemical uh, chemical weapons um, but that that plot was stopped but that was those were kind of terrorist plots whereas this kind of industrial scale program is is a bit different um, and seems to have started in 2015. 
how do they make them? You know, I've seen a, a DJI, like the typical kind of drone. And I look at that and I think, how the hell are you going to manage to get a mortar on that and make it drop in the right place to actually have any effect? In terms of like the munitions they use. Uh, so they're using like uh, different munitions in different areas. But around Mosul, where the majority of strikes happened, they were using 40 millimeter grenades, which they had uh, basically overridden the arming mechanism. So when you fire a 40 millimeter grenade, uh, it arms by uh, the inertia. Um, so when you actually fire it, and then also the spin of the 40 mil um, of the grenade itself. And what they've done, they've actually overridden those arming mechanisms and then made it just point detonating. So all they have to do is put a little 40 millimeter grenade on a DJI Phantom, uh, pull out the pin and then fly it off and, and drop it. Um, and it'll detonate on impact. And they have like a huge variety of different munitions that they've strapped to these drones, but most of them are actually pretty small, like 40 millimeter grenades, um, uh, VOG rounds, so the ones used in AGS-17, which are 30 mil. Um, but yeah, most of the explosions are quite small. The thing is they can be really accurate with them. So because these drones can hover, there's only really one direction they could go, which is straight down. So they can be affected by the wind and so on. Uh, but most of the time they're actually pretty accurate. So you saw like the Islamic State targeting vehicles quite a lot using these, these small bombs. Um, a lot of the 40 millimeter bombs they were using were high explosive dual purpose. So they had a little shape charge. So quite effective against uh, vehicles. Um, and so, yeah, they were targeting Humvees and stuff. And sometimes they were so accurate, they could actually get them into the hatch of vehicles. So through the gunner's turret and into the actual vehicle itself. And there's like one particular incredible video uh, showing a Humvee just absolutely disintegrating as this bomblet basically penetrates through the Humvee and detonates what I presume must be explosive ammunition within that Humvee and it just disintegrates. Um, so though these are pretty kind of small rounds, they can still do quite a lot of damage because with the drone that hovers, you can get it exactly in the right place. It's like an air force for like the borrowers or the Smurfs or something. You know what I mean? It's, I know it sounds dumb, but it's so small that I always think like, wow, it's, it's okay. It's not like a warthog coming down and like, bruh, everybody's dead. But it is kind of an air force in, in a kind of guerrilla way, I guess. It is. And it, it's in, in fact, you, you hit it like the nail right on the head there when you say like guerrilla air force. These things are so different from the kind of threats that most armies have been used to facing that that actually makes them more effective. Um, so, for instance, the uh, drones, the uh, fixed-wing drones that have been attacking Hemimean Air Base, uh, because they're like quite slow, uh, have a radar cross-section of, or probably have a radar cross-section of like a large bird and kind of move about the same speed, they're probably actually quite difficult to, to identify, uh, hence why the attack, or the presumed attack on New Year's Eve last year was probably so effective because they didn't even notice they were being attacked until these drones were like on top of them. How do they pull the pin? Like, How do they actually, I should have asked this before, but how do they drop the grenade from the drone? Because there's no claw or anything like that on a, on a DJI Phantom or whatever. So what they do, they just get a, like a little servo, uh, stick a, a wire on that servo, so the servo pulls a wire. Sorry, what's the servo? I'm an absolute idiot. Um, so a servo is basically a tiny little electron engine, effectively. Uh, so you just, yeah, it'll basically pull a, pull a wire. Oh, like you'd find in like a wind-up toy or some shit. Not wind-up, like remote controls. So like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, basically you just have like a little uh, wire hook on the bomb. Um, the servo pulls out 
the the wire from the hook and the bomb drops. It's simple as that. They're really easy to make. Jesus, I mean, it's it's, it's fucked up, but it's very um, I don't know. It's, it's ingenious, you know. It, it's incredible because this kind of stuff, all these kind of technologies, have been around for years and years and years. And it wasn't really until uh, like the Islamic State industrialized this that anyone noticed that this threat was actually pretty pretty effective. Uh, you know, at the moment, like. Like, look at Gatwick Airport. You know, the UK can't even protect a piece of critical national infrastructure from, like, a, what's effectively a toy. And, you know, it, it's bizarre. Like, you've got these toys which are doing incredible damage and have, like, an incredible psychological effect as well. Uh, because although the firepower is really small, because they can effectively strike anywhere, uh, you know, either without notice uh, or actually making their presence known, uh, people didn't want to like stand outside in, in Mosul uh, or spend time outside because they might get targeted by these drones. Uh, so it's not just like the far power they have, it's also a psychological effect they have. Yeah, definitely. I was watching, um, I think it's uh, James Jones's film for PBS about, I think it's just called Mosul. Was that for Channel 4? But anyway, it, it, somewhere in that footage you see them and when this drone comes, everybody just shits themselves. But like in a different kind of way, you know what I mean? It's just scrambling almost. And you can just see there like what you're saying is right, the psychological effect. I guess it's almost like a sniper, but it can just, you can't really kill it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, that's kind of my, my idea as well. Like, these should be thought of as uh, more akin to, like, snipers. So although the firepower is quite small, uh, the damage they can do because they can strike with such precision is actually where they're so powerful. And because they have, you know, they go up high, uh, so they can look down on stuff. And they're also quite quiet if they're a couple hundred feet in the, in the air, so you can't necessarily hear them. So, you know, you can be suddenly just hit without realising what's happened. So I don't know if you've seen that, that clip that Quentin Somerville from the BBC posted uh, in, when he was in Mosul and the group he oh, was with yeah. Yeah, got hit by, by one of his drones, but they didn't even realise what happened because they were like in cover behind a wall and suddenly they just got hit by this explosion. And they didn't realise until some time later they'd be hit by, by a drone bomb. And that kind of capability, the ability to put like a 40 millimeter grenade exactly where you want it, isn't really something that, uh, like far behind enemy lines, isn't really something that has been feasible until now. Um, you know, people had Islamic State guerrillas had like mortars and stuff, but they're pretty inaccurate initially. You know, you need to walk, walk the mortars onto the target. Whereas with this kind of attack, you can hit exactly where you want first time. Yeah, it's, it's like just having a long arm to drop a grenade anywhere, essentially. Yeah. And how did they get so many drones into Iraq? Because, you know, they were surrounded at one point in Mosul. And I think at that point was when they were launching, like, the most amount of uh, drone bombs, if I remember right. I read your work and I was looking at it. How did they get them in the country? Yeah, so the supply chain for this is absolutely fascinating. Basically, the Islamic State saw this drone program as a... Uh, really high priority. They pumped millions of dollars into it. Uh, they had a series of front companies uh, based around the world in like Denmark, the UK, Turkey, Spain as well. Some of which are still, arrests are still happening around the world as well um, based on that supply chain. And what they would do is these front companies would receive money that had been laundered. Uh, they would go out, buy these drones uh, and parts online and then transport them into Turkey, and then they'd be smuggled across the, likely smuggled across the border from Turkey into, into Syria or Iraq. Um, and it's interesting because with the DJI drones, 
you have to activate them. And so we're not entirely sure. The uh, conflict arm research did analysis on a couple of a few of these drones. And uh, officially, these drones have been like, activated in the UK or India. But we're not sure if they were actually activated there or if the person was using a VPN or proxies to make it look like they were activating the drones there, where actually they were just activating the drones in Syria and Iraq. Jesus Christ. So that, that, that's not some kind of... No dum-dum with an idea can just come up with that. That's a big operation, huh? No, this was, this was an industrial-scale operation with millions of dollars behind it. Uh, this was not like simply a few guys going on <laughs> like Hobby King and buying a few drones. This was you know, hundreds, if not thousands of drones. And, and they're also using the drones for other things. Like I know when I was speaking to, um, I think it was Hugo Carmen, he was saying that they were directing SVB IDs using these drones. So it's kind of like, I mean, in a way they have their own version of like a US drone room, albeit, you know, very ramshackle and gorilla, but they've got these SVB IDs going around and then they can kind of, you know, look around here, there and everyone tell people what's going on. Uh, yeah, so... I still think that the most powerful, powerful part of these drones is their ISR capabilities, so their intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance abilities. So the ability to you know, go a few kilometers behind enemy lines, like check out a, an enemy base, um, or in the case of Mosul, direct SVB IDs onto targets. You, know, you can imagine if you're an SVB ID driver, like you've got all the armor plating around your vehicle, you've got like a small slot, um, which you can see out of. So your situation awareness is pretty small, very limited. Uh, so we have at least one recording uh, of uh, showing, or uh, you can hear the, the pilot or the drone pilot directing the SVB ID onto the actual uh, enemy position. Uh, so, you know, you've got a very powerful weapon being directed by a, a drone. And this, you know... That's fascinating. Like that kind of combined arms technique is is pretty complex, and it obviously works quite well, as you saw in uh, in primarily in West Mosul. Yeah, I don't know if I stole this or what. I don't know, but I always call it low tech guerrilla warfare, and you see other groups using it as well, like using the most basic kind of technology to actually pull off quite big attacks. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, I do. Um, so, <laughs> like when. Uh, the Syrian Arab army was approaching Jerusalem, and they obviously Islamic State was being pushed back. Uh, the Islamic State still managed to destroy a pretty huge uh, ammunition dump in a uh, stadium in Jerusalem, and they just used two small drones, but they destroyed a you know like a huge amount of ammunition there. And the fact that you can carry out an attack that has operational effects using uh, such a small weapon, uh, such a small toy is yeah it's pretty awesome yeah it's incredible i mean it's a shame that the the dashis are using it but you know it's, it's incredible at the same time um and what what can be done to combat these drones you know what what is what's what's the best thing to do because i know i read uh i think you said earlier quentin somerville's thread the other day basically explaining why shooting them down with like an ak is not a very good idea and not very effective yeah so trying to shoot down drones apparently doesn't work that well uh, plus, you've got to you know, think about where those thousands of rounds are eventually going to land. This is what I have learned from discussions around uh, Mosul Offensive. But it sounds like what they were doing was jamming the, the frequencies. So the, the frequencies that uh, the controllers were using to fly the drones, that sounded like it was reasonably effective. But the problem is you can't jam everything because you start interfering with your own communication systems, with civilian infrastructure, that kind of stuff. 
it's why you don't want to take in Gatwick again, why you can't really, or you have to be very, very, very careful jamming around an airport because, you know, you've got communications with hundreds of airplanes that go around in the sky. Um, and then you've got these, uh, like, weird uh, directional jammers, which look like a, basically a rifle with a TV antenna on the front of it. I've seen them, yeah, it's very uh, cyberpunk. Very cyberpunk. Uh, but I'm not entirely sure how effective these things are, because, so, if you've got a DJI Phantom, which is pretty small, you know, it's maybe like 40 centimetres across, something like that, and it's 300 feet in the air, you know, you have to acquire that target using your eyeball um, and then point this this rifle at it. So you have to be able to actually spot the drone. And if that drone is, as I said, like several hundred feet up in the air, you won't be able to see it. Like, how are you going to bring it down with that kind of directional jammer? So right now, like drone countermeasures are pretty, pretty basic. It's still catching up to this threat. And I'm not entirely sure if there's a coherent system yet to, to fight these kind of drones. Um, I think the most effective method at the moment is widespread jamming. But as I said, that has its own drawbacks as well. Yeah. Well, you mentioned this situation at Gatwick. Let's talk about that. What the fuck happened, man? One minute they're saying, oh, we've got to shut down the whole airport because of two drones. They arrested some poor, like, random couple, let them go. And then they're saying there's no drones. Like, what's going on? Uh, um, so I think it's best described as a cluster. Uh, <laughs> the... I do believe there was initially uh, drones at the airport. I think the, uh, the statement about there being a possibility that there were no drones uh, was just miscommunication. Um, I, yeah, so there, there were, I believe, drones at the airport. There are a couple of videos, uh, one of which I've geolocated to uh, Gatwick North Terminal showing a drone passing at the airport. The problem is uh, whether it was police drones uh, so there are these 60 statements or 60 plus statements of people who've seen drones over Gatwick Airport. So we're pretty sure there are drones there. Um, but Sussex Police has its own drones as well, uh, who look after security at Gatwick Airport. And those drones are assigned to uh, Gatwick Airport. So, I mean, there, there, there is the possibility that a lot of these drone sightings were actually just police drones, which... <laughs> If no that way. is the case, that's incredible. <laughs> and the thing is, like, I, I haven't heard anything from, uh, from that incident, which is really, really interesting. So I don't know what actually happened. I think that there were drones over the airport. Um, we already have drone truthers, by the way, who believe that there were no drones and this was cover for a secret operation of some kind. Of course. And I bet they're funded by you guys, by Bellingcat and Soros and all that shit. Um, yes, exactly, yeah. Uh, I am a CIA front, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, so like either you have an incredibly effective um, disruption attack on a piece of UK critical na national infrastructure, or you have some poor hobbyist who's flown his drone over Gatwick a couple of times, realised what he's done, uh, buggered off and then you've had police flying their drones around the airport um, and then scaring themselves I love the idea of like Fred just like <laughs> like sat at home terrified watching the news like oh shit that was me that would be so funny if that's the situation you know but but jokes aside thinking about it I think that brought up a lot of uh, questions like what the fuck would we do if ISIS actually wanted to do that or some other group wanted to attack the airport oh massively uh, so <laughs> yeah so my kind of 
worst case scenario is if someone uh, tried to carry out a terrorist attack using using drones. So I think it's not actually that uh, likely. I think it is more likely that people rent a van, buy a few knives, and then you know ram a van into a crowd of people and then start stabbing people, like happened on uh, London Bridge and Westminster Bridge. But I do think that a a drone attack, especially one that's spread out over a series of time or a period of time, would be really devastating because it'd be so hard to stop. I mean, we saw like in Gatwick that, you know, all these resources couldn't identify what the actual issue was. And imagine that I had three different drones and three different small drone bombs. And I dropped one in a different location in London every kind of three days and then dumped the drone uh, like on top of a tall building or something on a skyscraper or wherever, somewhere where no one's going to find it. You know, you can't stop that. Like, there's no, like, concrete barriers. Uh, there's no way to patrol it. Uh, you, you wouldn't be able to stop that kind of attack. And that that is quite a concerning concept. I mean, it is. If you, I don't know, imagine even even more basic, they just pull in, I don't know, a hand grenade from the Balkans or something and just drop it in the middle of Oxford Circus at, like, peak time. That's at least, like, three people probably dead. I mean, the thing is, like, the casualty count wouldn't even have to be that high. Yeah. What yeah. would really matter would be, like, the impact and uh, showing that the authorities had no way to, to stop this kind of attack or prevent this kind of attack. Uh, and that's, that's really scary. Um, so, for example, if you uh, think back to, I think it was 2001 or 2002 with the, the Washington Sniper... So, you know, these two guys driving around in a, oh, yeah. in a car, uh, which had been modified so that they could uh, fire out the back of it. And it basically, you know, shut down a significant portion of uh, the city of Washington. And because people were afraid to get out their cars, they were afraid to uh, pump petrol, which is where I think a lot of the attacks happened. And I think the effect of this kind of drone attack would be very similar to that kind of uh, sniper attack because people would just be afraid to go outside. Um, the same effect that we saw happening in Mosul. Um, you know, people wouldn't want to go outside, they wouldn't want to go to public places. Like, the impact would, I think, be out of proportion to the number of casualties and to the actual firepower of, of this kind of attack. Without, without the kind of political meanings behind it, if you think about it, whilst being quite modern, the, the kind of drone, commercial drone bomb attack is almost the most perfect terror attack you can think of in, in that sense because, like you said, it just shuts everything down. It makes everybody terrified. Yeah, exactly. It has the, that uh, terrifying effect. Uh, I, I think, as I said, like, I think this is a uh, like worst-case scenario and I think other kind of attacks are much more likely. But I think this kind of attack, it's much more difficult to to create countermeasures to it. Yeah, it's still there. And what about other other drone bomb attacks? I know it's not just ISIS. Like, for example, we were speaking a lot about the um, the Venezuela drone bomb attack that where they tried to hit Maduro last year. I mean, what happened with that? Did we ever really find out? Yeah, that was that was fascinating. That happened um, when I was actually uh, out drinking with some friends. So I was incredibly drunk and looking through my Twitter feed. And watching all these videos and images and trying to piece together what was happening while I was like in the back of a taxi, feeling like I wanted to throw up. But I knew that this was incredibly pivotal moment uh, in in this kind of sphere. So basically, you had two uh, DJI uh, Mavic 600s uh, with uh, what I believe to be some kind of high explosive strapped underneath them, 
and they try to attack Majuro at a uh, military parade. And it seems like they were either jammed or the pilots were uh, arrested before uh, they managed to complete their attack properly. So one drone detonated uh, a couple of hundred meters away from, from the stage, and Majuro was obviously absolutely shocked. Like, the explosion was pretty large. And then the, the second one uh, detonated about just over 400 meters away. Uh, like, at a residential block, and there's a film uh, showing it uh, gradually kind of sliding into the side of the building. Um, and it doesn't look like it's under control. So it's either been jammed, or there were also reports that uh, Venezuelan security actually managed to apprehend the pilots before... Like grab him as he had hold of the remote, like you mean? Yeah, um, that was certainly what it said in one news report, yeah. Uh, but either way, the, the fact that whoever this carried, or whoever carried this out, managed to get very, very close to killing a head of state is pretty, pretty interesting. Although it's also interesting that it seems uh, the Venezuelan intelligence service or their security did manage to actually stop this attack before it happened. Uh, before he was successful anyway, sorry. Yeah, perhaps just listening out though, right? Or, or do you think they somehow had some kind of sensor that would tell them there was a drone operating or something? I don't know. Um, I do believe that they have the capability to, to jam drones. So they have those uh, like funny rifles with TV antennas, uh, the directional jammers. Uh, and the... So the drone that detonated, uh, it was hovering quite high up, but they still managed to detonate the payload. So to me, that indicates that it is possible that the drone was being jammed, so the pilot can control it, but they still had control of the the, te- the frequency in which the, the detonation was uh, controlled by. Uh, so they couldn't get the drone any closer, so they chose just to detonate the drone. I think that's what happened with that one that detonated quite close to the stage. Yeah, that would make sense. I saw the footage, and it is a little bit like, why are they blowing it up up there? But I didn't think about that. Yeah, if they can't get it down, he probably just thought, oh, fuck it, just bang, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it, it did cause a few casualties. I think it was seven casualties among uh, soldiers in the parade. Uh, and But I don't think the, the second drone, which crashed into the building, actually caused any casualties. Um, I think it just caused a, a fire uh, in the in the flats. And who do you think did this? I read, I read some article about... Um I think they were saying that some some former military were being trained in Colombia and they did it, but I, I was kind of I a bit skeptical about it. What what do you think? Do you think that it was just kind of you know a, a, basically like local resistance fighters or what? Uh, in terms of attribution, I don't think it was just like local resistance. Uh, so we've seen a couple of IDs in Venezuela before, and uh, when there was some unrest there. Uh, in the summer of 2017, I believe it was. Yeah. Uh, and those those IDs were pretty basic. It looked uh, like they were using some kind of low explosive, like gunpowder or something. You know, when these bombs detonated, there was a lot of flame. Uh, it looked like there were even fireworks in there. Oh, that was the article you wrote um, when they went off when the motorbikes were going past, yeah? Precisely, yeah, exactly. So yeah, they looked like pretty, that, yeah. pretty basic stuff. Um, this was... A much more complex attack you know they're using uh, two quite large drones um, strapped with what appears to be some kind of high explosive uh, or at least a powerful explosive uh, and so that it's very different from the kind of bombs we were seeing in 2017 so I think whoever carried this out had quite a bit of capability 
exactly who that is, I wouldn't like to say because I, I don't know. No, I don't either. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting one, though, because in the space of two years, basically, we've seen these drone attacks go from Mosul, you know, ISIS launching them against the Iraqi military. And now we've seen it, you know, possible resistance fighters trying to kill Maduro. And the other day there was, uh, it wasn't a drone, but there was a model airplane where the PKK had used it to actually attack some Turkish soldiers. They claimed to have killed one of them, I don't know. But what do you think, what do you think will, will happen in the future with these drone bombs? Is that we seeing more guerrilla groups taking them up? Yeah, at the moment you've got like the PKK using them, the Islamic State, uh, various different rebel and jihadist groups uh, in uh, Syria. Uh, Hezbollah has access to... Uh, these kind of drones and has used them in the past, although they're kind of mixing commercial uh, commercial drones with specifically military drones. Uh, you've seen similar thing happening in, in Yemen as well. Uh, and the reports of drones being used by Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab as well. And there's, I've also seen an image of an armed drone in Libya as well. So I would be, if I was a... Uh, the leader of a rebel faction, I would uh, be looking to to buy a drone and the capability to drop a drone bomb um, because I think it is a very effective weapon. So yeah, I think we're going to see a lot more armed groups using these kind of weapons. It's like the new hit is very in right now for militant groups. Huh? Like, yeah, we've got to get the drone bombs, lads. I saw even uh, Gaza, there was one the other day, I think Hamas or the, the Al-Qassam brigades, they, I think they said they recovered it from Israel, but then I think it proved to be something different. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. So that was, uh, so that drone has the same markings that the IDF put on their small drones. Uh, so the IDF has been using uh, DJI uh, Mavic 600. I don't know if you're noticing a theme here in the, the kind of drones that are being used by these groups uh, or being used uh, as armed drones. Basically, the IDF put uh, or armed them with uh, CS, so tear gas, so they can go quite deep into Gaza and drop this tear gas uh, where they want to disperse these protesters. So there's been a lot of unrest in Gaza recently. And so the IDF has been using these drones to, to drop um, tear gas, including apparently targeting uh, like journalists and film crews as well. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me, to be fair. Yeah. Uh, so the drone that I think it was Hamas displayed had the, the same markings that other IDF drones had as well. So I, I do think that drone was uh, seized or shot down um, and then rebuilt uh, and they, they, they got it from the IDF. Oh, really? Oh, so, so it was true then. They, uh, I guess, whether well, you think they modified it? Um, either modified it or, or just fixed it. So sure. whether they shot, that, shot it down or it came down for another reason, uh, they've, they've clearly... You know, it looks whole. It doesn't look that damaged. So either they've repaired it uh, or it didn't need repairing in the first place. So why DJI drones? Why DJI Phantom and Mavic? What, what's so good about those models? Because I think they're, they're cheap, ubiquitous and quite easy to get hold of. I think they're also quite easy to use as well. They're, they're, they're relatively cheap and effective. Oh yeah, it's that simple. In fact, I remember we were, um, I was filming in uh, Chernobyl about two years ago. And my mate brought a drone to film with because obviously, you know, it looks really good in the fallout zone and whatever. And he just had it in his pocket. And I was like, what the fuck is that? He's like, it's the drone. And I was like, that's not the drone. He said, yeah, it is. Because I remember when, they, when I first saw one, it was in this huge Pelican case and now literally just in his pocket folded up, you know? Yeah, that's the, the GGI Mavic. Uh, is you can get like the really small ones, which you like fold up and you can fit in your pocket. 
they're, they're really, really impressive. It's scary as well. It's a lovely thought to leave everyone with. Um, so Nick, I think, I think we got it. I think it's really good. But uh, what's next for you? What are you working on at the moment? Uh, so I am <laughs> I'm constantly working away at a short history of the Islamic State drone program, uh, which is at about 8,000 words, but it's my nightmare because I don't think I'll ever finish it. And then I'm also just writing a short article about uh, re-examining the attacks that have been happening at Hemimin Air Base because there's like really fascinating attacks. You've got these like bodged together aircraft made out of like polystyrene and plywood that have been dropping these bombs on Hemimin Air Base uh, in Syria, uh, like in north northwest Syria and Latakia. And yeah, these drones have basically been shutting down this really strategically important air base. And they've, you know, been attacking multiple times. I think it's around 20 times or so in the last year until the um, ceasefire in Idlib. <laughs> and yeah, these are really kind of crappy, cheap drones, but they're just really good at doing their job, which is shutting down this strategically important airport. So I'm just going to be doing like a, a report looking at what kind of pieces are being used in those drones, uh, where these drones have been found, uh, because these drones have been found in some really interesting places, um, especially when you consider that their range is about 100 kilometers, according to, to Russia. And they've been found quite a long way away uh, from Syria, uh, which is, yeah, pretty interesting. But you have to read the article to find out about it. <laughs> okay. Well, you mean they flew or they were taken? Or maybe they started there. I don't know. Uh, okay. Okay. All right. Well, how can people keep track of your work? And, you know, if they want to read that article, how can they do it? Uh, so I'm on Twitter. So N underscore Waters 89. Uh, or just look for Nick Waters. And then I write primarily for, for Bellingcat. So if you're interested in drones or any kind of open source investigation, check out bellingcat.com. Uh, really just find us. Yeah, we, we like things like drones, open source investigations, finding GRU, spies, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, mate. Thank you very much, Nick. Yeah, no worries, mate. That was Nick Waters talking about the weaponization of commercial drones and how ISIS, PKK, various other militant groups are using them against generally government forces in modern warfare. It's 2019 now and Popular Front is really starting to move forward. So if you want us to keep moving, want us to keep doing the stuff we're doing, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popularfront. I am doing this without any commercial corporate backing. I don't want any of that shit on here. So the only way to kind of keep us moving is through the Patreon, really. So yeah, even if it's just $1, I've said this before, we've had over 150,000 unique downloads. If even like, I don't know, 10% of you lot went ahead with the $1, it would be a massive difference for Popular Front and you would get a lot more stuff. Probably wouldn't notice, you know, $1 or like ATP coming out of your account every month. Also, if you want more, like $5 a month, there are bonus episodes. We have a lot on there, like Jennifer Lopez and the PKK, how Abu Hajar came to the world, uh, the far-left militant group from France you've never heard of, all different bonus episodes there. It's basically a second podcast, if you like, but uh, the Popular Front Patreon one. Or if you don't want to get involved with Patreon, you can donate. Some people have been doing that. If you go to popularfront.co, scroll right down to the bottom of the page and you'll see there's a way to donate via PayPal or Bitcoin as well, which isn't just some fad. Um, I've been involved with Bitcoin for a few years. It's all right. You know, I think it kind of works. So yeah, if you've got deep pockets and you like what we're doing, help us out. 
This episode is sponsored by the defensepost.com, defense with an S. Very good analysis, articles, all sorts of stuff like that on modern warfare, war and conflict. It's also sponsored by Atlas News on Instagram. Go to instagram.com slash atlas.news. You can keep up to date with various conflict-related news there. It's really interesting the way they do things. I think it's quite cool. Also, go to our YouTube. We've got a brand new dispatch up there. It's the first thing I've featured in for Popular Front as an on-screen reporter, which some of you might know. I used to do that a lot for Vice News. I enjoyed it. Got back into it. Planning to do a lot more stuff like that. I think it's uh, I think it's going well. It's got over like 12,000 views in a week. So it's not bad considering we've got fuck all um, subscribers on the YouTube. So go to youtube.com slash Popular Front. That's going to be building up a lot more this year. We're trying to do a lot more video stuff. All linked in with the podcast. Don't worry, the podcast is not going to slow down at all. In fact, it's going to speed up. To keep up to date with Popular Front on Twitter, follow me. That's twitter.com slash Jake underscore Hanrahan, H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N. Or the Popular Front Twitter, if you can't be bothered with my bullshit, I don't blame you. That is twitter.com slash Popular Front CO, which is the same as the website. So popularfront.co, that's the website. You'll find all the episodes there. Soon that's going to be a fully working website with articles, videos, all sorts of stuff. I'm really looking forward to that. I think it'll be great. I really want this to become like the go-to platform for independent, weird, if you like, conflict journalism. We are weird because we're just sick of the elitism, like I've said a hundred times. Fuck all that. Popular front moving forward. Um, Thank you very much to the following people. Without them, none of this would be possible. So thank you to Adam Berg-Snyder. Axel Iverson, Chad Walker, Dan Dunham, Daniel Shearer, Darby, Diana Gorvanek, Emily Molly, Fletcher Tate, James from the Discord, Joanna Stocker, Joel Tambusi, Joshua Yabbott, Lawrence Abrahams, LH, Margaret Bowling, Michael Euler, Patrick Bronte, Peter McCormick from the What the Bitcoin Did podcast, Rasha. Russia Al Akidi, sorry. Ryan Sandercock, Scartoon, Scott Jonesy, Sean Fowler, Teddy, Tony Bin, Zachary Hinch, and Anthony Kabarak. Thanks very much for the support. It's keeping everything moving forward. Uh, music in this episode. The intro was by the synthwave artist Home, and the outro was by my mate Son of Old. Go to his SoundCloud, that's soundcloud.com slash sun-of-old. And because I speak like a rat, some people don't understand what I'm saying when I say son of old. So it is S-U-N, like the sun in the sky, of old. Old being, you know, old, O-L-D, old man. There you go. Soundcloud.com slash sun-of-old.